So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want you to go ahead and find Luke chapter five for me this morning. One of my favorite passages of scripture is what I wanna walk through today. And I have a few notes I'd love for you to walk away with tonight. Not tonight, this morning. <laughs> we'll get there. This morning, on Luke chapter five, and as, you, as you're finding Luke chapter five, I wanna tell you about the first mission trip I ever went on. I don't know if you've been on a mission trip, I hope you have. Mission trips are fantastic, they're amazing. They can also be very interesting because each one has a different group of people and every group of people come with unique personalities and unique trips and different stuff like that. The first mission trip I ever went on was to Tegucigalpa, Honduras. You may have been there. I've been there for three, time, three years. I love Tegucigalpa, Honduras. I love Impacto Church and the guys down there. And I've had three times where I've been able to go down there and serve. And I'll never forget the first year I went. As you heard Brother Steve say, I've only been saved for eight years. So when I went on my first mission trip, I was also leading that trip, which was hilarious because I didn't know what a mission trip really was. And they were looking to be for some guidance. And so, man, I was fired up. I had never been on a mission trip. I didn't know what we were gonna do. I just knew we were gonna go serve the Lord. So I was recruiting everybody I could. I mean, if you had the fish sticker on the back of your van, I was recruiting you to go on this trip. All right, I'm telling you, any college students, I was like, listen, if you know Jesus, if you've heard of Jesus, just come on, we're gonna go serve him in Honduras. I was eager, I was excited. And uh, man, I was raw, I was rough around the edges, but I invited one of my buddies to go on this trip and he was really raw, he was really rough around the edges. And I did everything I could to really explain to him what this was gonna be like. And I could tell each time that we met at Chick-fil-A that it really wasn't clicking yet. <laughs> I remember sitting down with him and I was like, listen now, this is not a vacation. <laughs> this is not a vacation. Like, I was like, listen, there's no vacation elements to it. And he was like, oh yeah, for sure, bro, I got you. Let's do this, <laughs> you know? And I was like, I hope it's clicking, you know? <laughs> like he was really processing what we're doing and stuff. And like, uh, we went through our trainings and everything. And I'm not gonna say his name, We'll call him Chip, but I won't say his real name. And uh, I'll never forget, in our trainings for Honduras, we told the team over and over. We're like, hey, as soon as we get there, and Rick Jones, uh, y'all know Rick Jones, he led this trip with me. We're like, hey, don't go anywhere alone. <laughs> don't go anywhere alone. We're in a foreign country. A lot of you, this is your first trip. Chip, this is definitely your first trip. Don't go anywhere alone. Take somebody with you. And I kid you not, we were not off the plane 10 minutes. We were in a Honduran airport. <laughs> we ain't left the airport, we're not even in the van. And I hear my wife go, where's Chip? <laughs> and I look around, I tell you what, it's never a good feeling when you gotta look at your wife and say, baby, I don't know. <laughs> and she's like, that's your buddy, you better go find him. Went off to buy something on his own. It's like strike one, we're not even in the van yet. And so we get halfway through the week. We're exhausted, we're tired, we're a little beat up. We've been climbing mountains. We've been going door to door, sharing the gospel. We've been in the heat, it's hot. We're wearing pants, we're wearing long sleeves. Like we're, we're really in it, it's tough. And it's kind of what we went over in the training, but it never really clicked for Chip, you know? And, and I look over at him when we're on top of a mountain doing a VBS and he's got this look on his face and I can tell this dude is struggling right now. And I walk over to him and I try to do my best, like pat him on the shoulder. I was like, hey man, and I, I go, like, go like this. I was like, how you doing? And this is no joke, in three words, he looked at me, this is exactly what he said. He goes, this is tough. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's kind of what we went over in the training. <laughs> Not a vacation. <laughs> and the next thing he said to me, I've never forgotten in my life because it was one of the purest things. He had a pure soul about it. He was a great guy. But this is what he said. He looked at me, he said, Daniel, I don't think I really understood what I was signing up for. 
And I got to witness firsthand somebody make a commitment without first counting the cost of that commitment. And as we look at Luke chapter five, this is what I want you to understand. There's a lot of people who choose the Christian life who have not first counted the cost of following Jesus. And I've never forgotten that, and here's why. I wrote this down in my notes. Making a commitment without counting the cost is not a commitment, it's a false claim. And I can't blame Chip, I've been there many times myself in the Christian life, and I know you have too, where it gets tough. For Chip, it was cool when we were in the bed and breakfast playing card games, Mission Trip was great. For a lot of us in this room, let's be honest, when we're not being persecuted, we're not suffering, when everything's going well, the Christian life is fantastic. Like, well, yeah, we love the Lord. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who thinks of me, right? Like, we love it. But then when things get tough, when we go through a mountain, we go through a valley, we go through hardship, we go through persecution, our commitment is tested. Now, I want you to understand, Jesus had a lot to say about counting the cost. He spent a great deal of time about it. I'll turn your attention to Luke chapter 14, it'll be on the screen, you don't have to turn there, but here's what it says in Luke chapter 14, this is Jesus' words. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. But Jesus doesn't stop there, he gives another one. He says, or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? How many of y'all know that we are in a spiritual war every single day we step out those doors, amen? We're at war, a spiritual war quite literally, a cultural war, we are at war. Verse 32 says this, Jesus goes on to say, if not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now here's verse 33, and this is tough. This is gonna set the tone for our text today. Here's verse 33, it says, in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. That's tough. What does that mean? I wanna talk about it this morning. The title of my sermon is this, How to Leave It All Behind. How to Leave It All Behind. As we look at Luke chapter five, Peter is gonna have an encounter with Jesus where he literally leaves everything in order to follow Jesus, but he has to do that by forsaking it all. And for us, as we count the cost of the Christian life, whether you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, we're grateful you're here. I wanna give you a very realistic view of following Jesus this morning. Or for some of those of you in the room like me, who you're believers, and you're trying your hardest to live for the Lord, and sometimes it gets really tough, if we can be honest, in church this morning. It gets hard, it's not a cakewalk, <laughs> following Jesus in this culture and in this world. How to leave it all behind. How to count the cost of following Jesus. So if you will, look with me at Luke chapter five, and let's begin verse by verse, walking through verses one to 11 this morning. Starting in verse one, it says this. As the crowds was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, this is Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds about, teaching the crowds from the boat. Now I wanna pause right there for a moment. Jesus' method of ministry is the best and perfect example of ministry we have. 
Jesus did ministry perfectly. A lot of us are doing ministry, whether it's in the church or outside the church walls. Understand this. Jesus' method of ministry was perfect. And his method was very, very flexible. Jesus was resourceful. What I love about this text is that as the crowds are pressing in on him, about to collapse because they're so eager to hear the word, he gets into a boat to teach. Now, here's what I love. The Sea of Galilee, as you know, was a very large lake of fresh water. And over the water, Jesus' voice would have echoed from this boat. This boat wouldn't have been nothing more than 16 to 20 feet wide. His voice would have echoed across the water. And the people surrounding the area was a very hilly area, which means that voice would have carried and people would have been able to hear him from all over. I love this because Jesus literally looks at where he is in the world, looks at his surroundings, is flexible, and finds a way to preach the gospel. What he said was his purpose for coming. He came to preach that the kingdom has come. So understand this, family. I think a lot of times we believe we need a perfect environment to teach the gospel. We live in a broken city, man. We don't have a perfect environment to preach the gospel. We preach the gospel in any environment. You don't need a stage. You don't need a platform, and neither do I. Wherever you are, whoever you're around, all you need is a humble heart and somebody who's willing to listen, and you can teach the gospel wherever you are, at your workplace, at your school, wherever you are. One of the things I wrote down in my notes is we need believers who are not desperate for a platform, but people who are desperate to win souls, to win souls. I love it because you look at Jesus' method of ministry. He was resourceful, and he preached the gospel as was his mission to preach. At verse four, let's keep going. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Man, I love Peter. Don't y'all love Peter? I love studying Peter in the New Testament. Peter, he says, master, Simon replied. His title's gonna change in a few verses. Master, Simon replied. We've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. Woo! God bless you. I can't do that for everybody, though. That was a trap my first time, so I'm sorry. Peter catches himself, and then he says this. He says, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Don't you love that? I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit. He said, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Verse 6, when they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat, come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, He fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I am a sinful man, Lord. Reminds you of Isaiah chapter six, doesn't it? I am a sinful man, Lord, for he and all those who were with him were amazed at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they left, then they brought boat, the boats to the land, left everything, and followed him. Let me give you number one this morning, and it's this. Number one, in order to leave it all behind, we have to give away your method of success for God's. In order to leave it all behind, to count the cost of following Jesus today, we have to give away our method of success for God's method of success. So let me ask you a question. What is success to you? How would you define a successful life? I love it because if all of us filled out a piece of paper and turned it in up here, we might have hundreds of different answers on what a successful life would be. Even for some of you, I'm 28. I feel like I'm getting wiser. I don't know. You'd have to ask my wife. But I feel like I'm getting a little bit smarter as the years go on. 
My answer at 21 is a lot different than what it, would, what it would be today, right? And if you think about when you were in college, when you were in high school, your answer then would probably be a little bit different today. See, when I was lost at 21 years old, if you'd asked me what a successful life would be, my first quick fire answer would be what? Money. Like right off the bat. Like I can tell you what success is, it's a dollar sign. <laughs> like success is an amount, like I can get there one day. <laughs> it would have been fame, approval of people, people liking me, people accepting me. Here's a big one. For me, I would have told you at 21, a successful life is no conflict. If I can just avoid conflict and keep myself as comfortable as possible, I'll be just, just fine. What's interesting about when you define a successful life is that it depends on where you are too. What we say is a successful life in America might be different in another country, it changes. Culture has a big impact on what we claim is success. Time has a big impact on what we claim is success. What we say success is today in 2022 might be different 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. It changes. But what I wanna tell you this morning is that we don't have to wonder, we don't have to be influenced by the culture, we don't have to go search and find it. A successful life has been defined by, for you by your creator and is given to you in scripture. And God's word has not changed. God has not changed. So what do you define as a, sex, a successful life this morning? Because how you define a successful life will impact every way of how you live your life. Every way that you live your life will be impacted. And I think a lot of us believe it's building ourselves up. Sometimes I do, even as a believer, I believe that if I can build myself up high enough, I'll be okay. I'll find success. But I got news for you today, this morning. As believers, we can't feed our ego because following after Christ means dying to ego. A good friend of mine once said the ego stands for edging God out. <laughs> and boy, if that ain't what it is, Following Jesus, counting the cost of following him is quite literally about humility. So what is success for you? For all of you MAs, we're glad you're here. I would challenge you. What is success for you in coming to Bellevue in your time here? Is it making much of the name of Jesus or making much of your name and my name and all of our name? For those of you who have a career, what's success in your career? Is it making much of Jesus' name or is it making much of your name? These are questions that are important to ask. Because when you look at scripture and it talks about humility, it says this in Proverbs chapter 11, verse two to four, and I'm telling you, it's stout. It says, when arrogance comes, disgrace follows. But with humility comes wisdom. If you want to know if you're getting wiser, are you becoming more humble? A hard question I have to ask myself. Verse 3 in Proverbs 11 says, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the perversity of the treacherous destroys them. Wealth is not profitable on a day of wrath, but righteousness rescues us from death. It's not fun to have your ego put in check. Anybody been humbled by the Lord before? Woo! I prayed that prayer one time. Six months after getting saved, I said, Lord, humble me. It took about five minutes. Haven't prayed it since. I'm just being honest. Now I pray, Lord, I am humbling myself before you. I changed that prayer real quick. Understand that I changed that prayer real quick. That's true, too. But when Jesus steps in Peter's boat, this is an ego check. Now, let me remind you, Peter's the fisherman. Jesus is the carpenter. Jesus' skill here in earthly terms was building and crafting, but Jesus is not a fisherman in earthly terms. Peter was a fisherman. So what you have here for Peter, one of the awesome leaders in the Bible that we love and adore, who's redeemed by Jesus at the end of the Gospels, you have an ego check. Like, you see it all over this text. When Jesus steps into Peter's boat, when he steps into, watch this, 
Peter's area of expertise, the first thing Jesus does is call the shots. <laughs> and if I can tell you why sometimes it's hard for you and for me to really live for the Lord, it's not that we doubt Jesus loves us. We know he loves us. The hard part is we don't want Jesus calling the shots. I'm the guiltiest of it all. I love the Lord. I want to live for the Lord. But when it comes down to decision making, whoo, let me kind of come up with an answer first, Lord, and I'll kind of bring it to you and see what your thoughts are. Maybe you shift it around a little bit, but really we're going to go where I want to go. And the Lord's like, no, 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 no. Jesus steps into the boat with Peter and understands this. He changes Peter's method of success. Peter's got a method here. Hey, we, we, we fish at night, even though me and my buddies came back with nothing. We fish at night. I put food on the table. This is what I do. This is kind of my area of expertise. Jesus steps in and starts calling the shots. Changes his method. Hey, you're going to put the net out during the day. You're going to put it out during the day, and it's going to be more fish than you can even imagine. But if Peter doesn't throw out the net, he never witnesses the miracle. Some of us in here are missing a miracle simply because we won't obey and throw out the net. What's your net this morning? What has Jesus called you to do, told you to do through prayer, through scripture? What has he called you to do that you're still holding on to in the boat and you're not willing to trust him? You're not willing to change your method up a little bit to look more like God's method. It could be how you interact with your children. It could be how you interact at your career. It could be how you interact with people. It doesn't matter. But I believe that some of you are here today because, like me, not, area of, not every area of our life is perfect, <laughs> Like, can we break down that wall and admit that we don't have perfect families, we don't have perfect lives, we have problems, and they're real problems. And sometimes our method of fixing those problems is not the right method, and we need Jesus to step into the boat and change our method. And when we do, we see a miracle. We see a miracle. This is an eco check for Peter. And some of you, God's calling you out in some areas of your life, and it's an ego check, because this is his area of expertise. My wife is fantastic. She is a teacher at Bartlett Ninth Grade Academy. She teaches English. And I don't want to be biased, but I believe she's the greatest teacher that's ever lived on planet Earth. <laughs> and I'm so proud of her. She does a great job. Now, me, I can never teach English. And it's my language. It's embarrassing. <laughs> I don't even write my sermons with correct grammar. <laughs> and she cringes when she reads it. See, I don't write out going to. <laughs> I write gonna, amen, G-O-N-N-A, that's how I write it out, I write it how I speak it. She reads it, she's like, oof, Daniel, good thing this is in the paper, you know? <laughs> I could never teach English. But boy, I couldn't imagine my wife's face if I walked in her classroom on a Tuesday morning and I start calling the shots. <laughs> First off, I would get put in check as I needed, as I would need it, but I would be stepping into an area where she knows what she's doing, that'd be an ego check for her. And then it would be an ego check for me right after, of course. But understand this, whatever your area of expertise is, Jesus is going to come into it and he has the authority to change your method and to call you out of whatever that looks like. And here's a great promise I can give you. I don't know what that area is for you. I know that you do, I don't, I'm not gonna pretend to. But when you do obey like Peter, when you throw out the net, when you change your way of doing it and trust the Lord, even though it's hard, and trust him with his method, you'll see fruit and you're liable to see a miracle. I believe it's all over scripture. I love James 3.16. It says this, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. Selfish ambition, 
It's spoken all throughout scripture. And then you think about Philippians 2 where Jesus humbled himself by becoming a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. What is success for you? Is it scriptural? And if it's not, are you willing for Jesus to step into your boat and change it? Success is a big, big deal in our culture. It's a big deal here in the South too. I remember when I was in the first grade, man, we had a, we had a disciplinary thing that we would do whenever you got in trouble. I don't know if you had this when you were in school. We had this, the, the pull in the clip. I don't know if you ever had that. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I remember that. Where you have your first name written down on a clip and it would be put up there and if you got in trouble, you had to pull your clip. In kindergarten and first grade, I was terrified of ever having to pull my clip. It was like the end of the world for me. And I remember sitting in first grade and there was another kid in class who was loud and obnoxious and kind of caused a problem for the teacher, caused a problem for the kids. Every class has that student. <laughs> if there's teachers in here, I have some teachers like, oh yeah, I know that student. <laughs> Growing up, we remember that kid. And if you don't remember who that kid was, I don't wanna be the one to break it to you. <laughs> if you're thinking, man, we never had anybody like that growing up, you might've been that kid. But <laughs> don't leave, please don't leave, I'm joking. <laughs> man, this kid, he said something slick to me. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm so sorry. And for me, man, I was a nice kid, but I kind of retaliated, I'll be honest. I said something, I shouldn't have said it. I didn't know the Lord, I was lost. And I told him to shut up. And man, I felt it. Like at the minute I did, I was like, did I just say that? Oh my goodness. And the teacher, she didn't catch him, but she caught me. And she goes, Mr. Harris. In my heart, you know, I was like. <laughs> Come up here and pull your clip. I was like, oh, no. And I walk up there and it has my clip and I'm on the, I'm on the smiley face and I gotta pull my clip. And there was three levels. There was the smiley face, there was a frowny face at the bottom. And then you remember the middle is like a medium face. It was like. <laughs> you know, it's like a smiley face, medium face, and then, and she told me, <laughs> she told me just to pull it down to the frowny face, and I, I, I was so beat up about it, man, I was shook, I went home, I felt like my life was over, like so much to have in the future, not gonna learn anything else about math, <laughs> and uh, I get home, I know my mom's gonna be furious, I know my mom's gonna be mad, like, I, and I, I deserve it, and there were consequences that came with it, but I came home, I was so beat up, I was tough, I was, I was like, oh, I'm a failure, and I had failed. And that's tough when we fail. Like it's fun living, when your identity is in success, it's cool as long as you never fail, right? Because <laughs> when you fail, everything's ruptured. And I came home and I walked in the living room and my mom, who's here this morning, will remember this. I came in and I was ready just to get it. I was ready just to like, man, you know, have my life taken from me, like poof, you know? <laughs> and I sat down and I felt like such a failure. And what my mom said to me in this moment, I've never forgotten my entire life. And she'll remember this. She looked at me and she told me this. After she told me what my consequence was gonna be, because that's how it goes, she looked at me and she said, Daniel, I don't love you any less. And I'm confused, I'm a first grader, I don't understand. I'm like, you don't hate me, you know? And she goes, my love for you is not based on what you do. My love for you is based on who you are as my son. And I've never forgotten that. You know what, some of you, in your career, in ministry, in your life, you are living with every success and you are dying with every failure. Every success takes you as high as you can go, but every failure takes you as low as possible. God's calling you out of your sin. God's calling you to repent of your sin, but understand this. God's love for you is not based on what you do. God's love for you is based on 
who you are in Christ Jesus. And you don't have to be a slave to success or failure because both of them will make you a slave. <laughs> you can have freedom and it's only found in the name of Jesus because he died for your sins, rose from the grave, and conquered what you and me could never conquer. So I don't know who's in here tonight that's living for every success and dying with every failure, but I promise you this, there is freedom and it's found in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why I love Isaiah 54, verse 10. Brother Steve will preach on this soon. It says, though the mountains move and the hills shake, my love will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says your compassionate Lord. Being a disciple of Jesus means your value is not in your performance. Your value is found in the Prince of Peace. That's where your value comes from. A great test, and I, I believe this will be on the screen, a great test when it comes to this, is in your life. Are you doing the things you're doing because God said to? If God didn't tell you to, then who's calling the shots? Because God has promised to guide us. In Isaiah 30, verse 21, it says this. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear this command behind you. This is the way, walk in it. So your job, your career... Are you using that for the Lord's glory or are you using that for your own? Peter learned very quickly what it looks like to obey in his profession, in his career. What about your community, your neighbors, your friends, the people that you spend most of your time with? I have a hard question for you when it comes to the people you spend your time with as Peter's about to begin this discipleship journey and walk alongside other disciples. After you've spent time with your community, do you walk away looking more like Christ or more like the world. Because parents, you know this as well as I do for your kids, that a Christian community does not always mean they're a godly community. Can I get an amen? That doesn't always mean it's the case. We have apathy as believers. We have sins that we kind of just accept as believers sometime. And I wanna challenge your community. Is it a community that is making you more like Christ? Are you a part of that community where you are helping them become more like Christ? These are hard questions I ask myself. And at first you see Peter's ego almost break through, but he obeys. Let me direct you to verse five again. Master Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. Boy, it looks like, I'm not reading into it, I'm not gonna ask something that's not there, but it sure does look like Peter's about to give an excuse, but he doesn't. Whatever was going through his head, we don't know, but he doesn't. What he responds with is, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Peter gives away his method of success for Jesus' method of success, even though it practically doesn't make sense. Some of you know this text better than I do. Have you ever asked why? Even though practically it doesn't add up, why does Peter do it? I'll show you why in point number two. Let me give you this. Number two. Not only do we have to give away our method of success, but my final thing is this, we have to give away our measurement of success for God's measurement of success. Not only the how, but how we measure the results. Luke five, verse six, as you're writing that, says this, I'll read it for you. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. There was a great earthly result from this. That's not how it always goes in ministry. That's not how it always goes in our lives. 
Verse seven, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I am a sinful man, Lord. His, his title changes from master to Lord. Here's what most people don't understand when studying Luke five. They don't have a good understanding of Luke four. A lot of us have kind of missed Luke four and what happens there. We know about the temptation with Jesus in the wilderness, but we often miss a text in Luke four that's pivotal to Luke five. And here's why I want you to understand why Peter, why I believe he really trusts Jesus and puts out the nets and why he falls at his feet. Peter may not be a disciple quite yet, but he has seen Jesus. He knows about Jesus. In fact, he's had encounters with Jesus. In fact, his family has had an encounter with Jesus. Did you know that? I'm not making it up, it's here, let me show you. <clears throat> Luke chapter four, starting in verse 38, it says this. After Jesus left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house, this is Peter. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. As he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. And demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Aren't you grateful that Jesus has authority over every demon that tries to speak up? Amen? Hallelujah. Every single one of them is silenced by Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's not an idiot. He's eager. He's red, but he's not an idiot. He's not throwing his net out into the sea for any Johnny Luhu who steps into his boat and tells him to. Peter has seen Jesus. Peter has seen his family healed. Peter has seen Jesus take authority in the synagogue. He's seen Jesus heal the sick and have power over the demons. Yet it's the fish that makes Peter fall at his knees and say, Lord. What I wanna tell you is why this is so impactful is because Jesus has just stepped into Peter's day-to-day -day life. He is not just a teacher in a synagogue. He is not even just the Lord and the Son of God who has power over demons, but he is a Messiah who has come to Peter and cares enough for Peter to be able to provide for his family every day. Amen. Have you allowed Jesus to step into your innermost personal day-to-day -day life? Have you had that kind of trust with him? The areas that are most sacred to you the areas where you provide. Peter sees Jesus and he falls at his feet. I believe one of the greatest threats to our worship of Jesus is our worship of self. One of the greatest threats we will always face when it comes to worshiping Jesus is worship of self. It's an incredible miracle. I couldn't imagine seeing the fish with my own eyes after being out all night. But if I can tell you something, Peter falling on his knees had little to do with the fish. It was a part of it for sure. But it had little to do with the actual fish because Peter falls on his knees, not because of the miracle in front of him, but because he sees the Messiah in front of him. It's not just what God has done. It's who God is that has called Peter to fall and to recognize his own sin and to profess that he has a Lord in front of him. <laughs> in your life, do you worship the miracles of God, the movements of God, or does your heart worship the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who loves you so much and came down 
to die for every single sin, pay your penalty, shed his blood for you? Do you worship that Messiah? Or is it just about what God can do for you? Is it just about where God can take you? It's a shallow way to live the Christian life. Peter's worshiping the Messiah. He's not worshiping the miracle. Church family, if I can tell you anything, it's that we serve a God who first desires the worship of our heart before he desires the worship of our hands. That quite literally, any worship that we give from our hands must first come from our heart. That's how personal, that's how intimate of a God that we serve. When I was 21 years old, and I laid down on that ground, as I've shared my testimony so many times, when I laid down on that ground at that public park, the day after Christmas, when I was at a point where I was fed up with my life and I was broken and I was at this moment where Peter was and I just realized my sin was ever before me, I came to this brokenness in my life because as David says in Psalm 51, my sin was ever before me. See, that's the thing, when sin's ever before you, that means you have brought it into the light. But until you bring your sin before you, until you bring your sin into the light, your sin will continue to pull you into the dark. See, if your sin's behind you, if it's right here, it's gonna keep pulling you back into the dark and you're gonna keep pull, being pulled back and pulled back and pulled back into more discouragement, more hurt and more pain. But once you put that sin in front of you, once you name it and once you repent of it and once you give it to God, you bring it to the light, you bring it to somebody you trust, you start finding restoration. <laughs> you start breaking through. You start walking in the light again as you have been called to. Not walking in darkness, but walking in the light and you can have that this morning. You can have that right now. You don't even have to get saved in here. You can go out in the parking lot and give your life to the Lord. When I lay down, face down on the ground that night at that park, I was fed up of being one foot in and one foot out, chasing the Lord on Sunday and Monday, and then giving the rest of my week to money, fame, career, women, everything I could find. I kept running to the world, and nothing would fulfill me. Nothing would satisfy me. I kept coming back empty every single time. And the only reason I laid down on the ground that night is because Brother Steve told us to. I was at a Sunday night service and Brother Steve said, man, when you don't know what to do, lay down on the ground, pray and just say, God, help me. And I did it. And I stopped chasing the world. And I gave my life over to the Lord and it's been a radical change in my life ever since. Hadn't been perfect. It's been hard. I've made so many mistakes along the way. I still struggle every single day. But some of you are where I was. And you might even be a believer. You've got one foot right here on the carpet. You got one foot on the hardwood and you're trying to play both sides. You wanna be a disciple of the culture, a disciple of the world and a disciple of Jesus. But I'm thankful that we have a God who doesn't want to share us but wants us to be an all-in disciple of Christ. And so this morning, for the believers, these are my invitations. For the believers in the room, as you head out there this week, you have a calling. I have a calling. And it's to follow Jesus and go make other disciples of him. But to do that, we have to give away our method of success. We have to give away our measurement of success and let God reshape us.